Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Diary of the Truth and Movies. Today, The Big Sick. Coma, 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 coma comedian. As after Chill, Sleep, Blue, Kahuna and Lebowski, The Big Series finally gets a new update. Then from the sick to the very sick in Hounds of Love, blistering Australian debut horror that's almost unwatchable, but in a good way. Then Film Club, shuffling slack-jawed groaning ahoy as we salute George A. Romero's ketchup-tastic Day of the Dead. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. That's right, everyone. You have found your way to Truth and Movies. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you'd certainly be doing us a favour uh, you can do so via email at truthandmovies, or one word, at tcolondon, or one word, dot com, or LWLies on Twitter, or the Little White Lies Facebook page. But here in the flesh, today we have David Jenkins of Little White Lies. Hi, hi. And welcome back to Sophie Monk's Kaufman. Oh, wow. Thank you for that animated reintroduction. Well, I'm very, very happy to see you, Sophie. Uh, here's a quick uh, message from a listener, specifically Dean Mutaropoulos who's in Australia. He says, James, surely you can't be serious about Dunkirk. He's got a long list of complaints. Dunkirk was a big thing on last week's podcast, Sophia. Have you, have you seen it yet? I'm sorry, I have not, please. Crikey. David, yeah. you have. You're like a kind of leper who needs to be shunned <laughs> from society. Right. Well, it, Dunkirk. Oh, I just Even, don't want to be like doing it just because everyone's doing it, schlepping like a zombie. Nigel Farage has urged you to go and see it, and yet here you sit. Anyway, <laughs> listen, here's Dean's, and you can maybe bear these in mind when you actually do get to see it. He says, basically, as a professional photographer, the lighting in this film is all over the place. The dogfights in the sky, one second it's blue sky, the next clouds. One second, soldiers are trying to get off the beach in large waves and rain. Next scene on the beach is small waves and no rain, and it kind of continues. What do you think, David? Mm, I think that it reminds me a little bit of your complaint about with Nell and I and the and the fact that no. uh, yeah, sorry to keep raking up old graves here, but like the that's idea that's a completely of the, different thing. <laughs> no, I mean it's, it. It no. seems like a small continuity. Thing. No, that is different. <laughs> if listeners, if you weren't there, and, and lucky you for the with Nell and I discussion, my issue was the fact that they made no attempt to disguise the M25, which was constructed significantly after the events in with Nell and I. The comparison would be if Dean Mutaropoulos's complaint had been the fact that he'd used, say, a Vulcan bomber 
which wasn't built until the 50s right. in this film, that would be the equivalent, David. Mm, okay. okay. Should we just, should we just sweep <laughs> should we this just under the rug on? where it this, belongs? Yeah, this is yeah. actually the first time I've actually felt there's a kind of aggressive air in the room. Um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, no. So you, basically what you're saying is that that's not the point. This is a piece of art and you have to allow it some license. Yeah, I think so. What he's trying to do with this film is a little bit more kind of um, interpretive and expressionist and trying to build a, an artwork rather than a very, very staunch recreation of history. Although he's trying to do that as well, I guess. I mean, I think if your goal is to recreate reality 100% perfect, then you're probably not going to be able to make a movie. Uh, Dean's not finished, by the way. So just a final, lo- uh, final note. Here's a film with power and emotion, which I'm sure not enough modern humans have watched. Can we have it for Film Club, Duck You Sucker, or A Fistful of Dynamite, Sergio Leone at his best? Have either of you seen that? I've never seen that one, no. I'm, okay, not, I'm not the biggest Leone fan, really? to be honest. So I think that one is like not very high on my list. But... Sophie? No, neither have I seen this I'm, movie. I'm, I'm willing to champion this. I've not seen it either, but I do like a bit of Leone. Yeah. Better a day of Leone than a, than a hundred of sheep. That's that's a whiz. Yeah, we'll, we'll move okay, on, no, shall we? Fine. Yeah. Right. Can I, can I add a very quick uh, listener comment? Please do. This is a slightly stranger side, but um, my father is quite a kind of quiet man and uh, he doesn't sort of express himself in, in uh, a very sort of florid or over-emotive way. Hmm. I got a text message from him, uh, a rare text message from him about Dunkirk when he saw it. Okay. And uh, it just said, Dunkirk is good. There you go. So, yeah, that, I thought that was quite a nice sort of piece of feedback. Very yeah. just Economical. Economical. Yeah. Nolan Maybe we should would get pre- him on yeah. the pod. <laughs> Right. I'd say that I just need to know more immediately. That, like, that's a teaser. We need mm. to know more. So no. if any family members you want to get a shout out to? Uh, my dad. Great. Yep. Okay, we'll move on then. <laughs> the Big Sick after this. I was going to tell you about that. Are you judging Pakistan's next top model or something? <laughs> Seriously, no. who are these women? Okay, um, you know how we have arranged marriage in my culture? These are those women. These are women in Pakistan who want to marry you? They're not in Pakistan. You've met these women? Just with my parents and stuff. We haven't, like... But you're not serious about this, are you? It's my mom's thing. I just go along with it. So what does your mom think about you and me, then? She doesn't know about me, does she? No. Kamal Nanjiani and Zoe Kazan there... In a crucial moment from Michael Showalter's new film, The Big Sick, all about a stand-up comedian who meets a girl, girl falls into a coma in classic Smith's fashion. Sophie, you're going to talk about this one. Did it melt your heart? My heart did things. I wouldn't say it fully melted, but sure, inroads were made into my heart. Okay. I'm not sure how easy that is how frequently that that happens but okay sorry in more general can you, terms can you melt stone <laughs> is, is the question i think in more general terms i mean this film has been hailed as as, as the funniest rom-com of the year it feels almost a bit reductive just to call it a rom-com it is a very touching mm. a very uh, a very funny film what, what did you make of it yeah rom-com is reductive but reductive is the name of the film selling business but of course, we're here to provide a more nuanced analysis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's got a lot of different strands to it. 
uh, one strand is that it's a rom-com, but feeding into and complicating the rom-com element is the fact that the lead, Kamal, he comes from a traditional Muslim Pakistani family. And even though they've all relocated to Chicago, arranged marriage is still very much the done thing. And uh, he's having to go to these family dinners and meet all these potential wives and collecting their images. Each time he meets one, he leaves with a little picture of them that ends up in a cigar box. Almost like a CV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So he's got this family element and this heavy expectation that he's going to enter into an arranged marriage. And then he's got this meet cute blossoming meet cute situation and he's also he's trying to make it as a stand-up comedian on on the chicago scene and uh so yeah you've got these three elements and you think that's quite enough to be getting on with and then enter the coma right lest this all sound a bit far-fetched it is actually a true story uh i love the fact that it was such a kind of mature film almost from judd apatow or at least from the, the apatow stable i've had personally one or two issues with the kind of gross-out nature of some of his earlier productions, but this was by far and away my favourite film from his from his particular factory. David, what did you make of it? I went into the film, you know, not knowing anything about it, having not read... I mean, all I knew is that it had played at Sundance Film Festival and got loads of really good reviews and hype and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I was kind of intrigued by the title. I kind of think The Big Sick is not a kind of big you know marquee title <laughs> there's something quite off-putting about it let's go and see the big sick because uh, it makes you think of like actual vomit yes. although i think <clears> it's sick. a big one as it's well. a big load of vomit but like actually it's sick in the american way like oh my god i've got sick really yeah has somebody said specifically oh no, no well having seen the film i'm mm. deducing that because okay. oh, i'm still a little perplexed by the title you don't say I got big sick, even if you're American, do you? The big sick. Mm. I got the big sick. Is that a thing? To be honest, I think language is is evolving at such a rate that I think probably the kids and the Twitter folk are probably saying, oh man, I got big sick at the moment. You know, I I guess when I saw it, I was totally shocked by this kind of moment that happens in the film with Zoe Kazan's character. There is this little kind of foreshadowing thing where she, there's, there's sort of, wandering around a supermarket and all of a sudden she has this bizarre reaction which she kind of fobs off and sort of says no it's nothing it's nothing and it it is a bit like you know when you watch a movie and you see a character sneeze Mm. and it's like well they're gonna die Uh, it was a little bit like that something a little bit bad is gonna happen check off sneeze i think exactly when yeah (laughs) the chekhovian sneeze um the thing that I really liked about this film is that I just thought it had an amazing script. And I just found myself thinking there is just an amazing amount of funny lines in here. Mm. And every scene has something in it that I was like, yeah, this, that's, that's really funny. That's really clever. That's a nice little kind of conversational aside or the sort of relationships that sort of develop between Kamile and the, the parents of, mm. of um, Emily's character. Seem seem really interesting. Mm. It, it, worth a shout out actually to the cast: Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, playing the the, the parents of of Emily, and, and both. I mean, Holly Hunter, magnificent as you'd expect. Ray Romano doing heroic work with a giraffe choke in particular. As you say, there are funny lines it maintains, even though it's got very diverse strands to it. One of the reasons that it it flows so smoothly is it maintains that very kind of matter-of-fact, wry, gentle, but quite sensitive tone right throughout the subject of coma or arranged marriages or even 9-11 at at one point. I thought it was really funny moving. uh, Sounds like you're smitten, James. With this film? Yeah. I really enjoyed it. 
I really enjoyed it, yeah. It melted your heart. Yeah, but that, that's... I mean, most things do, you know, adverts, <laughs> offers on Chris Pack. It's pretty much anything, you know. Um, Michael Showalter is the director who did Wet Hot American Summer. He cited Tootsie, interestingly enough, as one of his influences while making this. I guess a, a, a parallel would be the, the fact that that also features a performer living a, a double life. But it's, I think it's really interesting that he's, he's directed this because he himself has kind of come up from this lineage as actually a comic performer himself. Who, Michael Schoelter? Michael Schoelter. I mean, he started off in a kind of comedy troupe with the, another comedy director called David Wayne, who is also involved in Hot Wet American Summer. It's not too much of a kind of overly, outwardly, obviously comic film. It's like a comedy drama, I guess. But he's, he, you know, in terms of the way he directs it, he sort of steps back and he's not trying to put any kind of personal imprint on this, not trying to force it into a kind of comedy template. Mm. But at the same time, you really get a sense that his work with the actors has been really important, like actually getting the beats right, getting the, the reactions right, making sure, you know, the jokes hit at a, a good rate. I think it's really good that he's been involved in it really um, anything we didn't like about this film um well i'm a bit more mixed on it than the both of you like i think some my favorite aspect of it is actually the more traditional aspect like the chemistry between kumail and emily it's very very fresh like he's doing the like oh i'm just this deadpan comedian guy and she's giving what i would describe as a zesty performance <laughs> it's because she her character takes a while before the backstory drops in the familiar context drops in so for like probably about the first hour, what you're getting of her is is her character, her eyes, her, the way she reacts to him, the way she takes the piss out of him when he's showing a B movie and she's like, uh, you know, it's just like the classic third date. You check if the girl likes a B movie. It's nice, by the way, that the the movie they watch is Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, is it? I thought yeah. it was Doctor Phoebe. Yeah, afterwards, but the first oh, film they watch sorry. is Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, ah, on brand. Exactly. Mm. It's almost like they. <laughs> Uh, collaborating with us on Truth and Movies. Anticipating the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So I liked their relationship a great deal and that's what ended up moving me. But I feel like because there is so much going on, some characters are more like Kumail's family. I mean, you get the general sense of the dynamic, but I didn't feel like they were particularly fleshed out characters. Right. Um, nice to see a deal actor out of four, uh, four lions making an appearance here as, as, as Kumail's brother. Yeah, exactly. They had a they had a nice rapport, but I just felt like in some places it was a little uneven, and there were certain places where I was less moved and invested than others. So yeah, I feel like it, you know it juggles a lot of narratives very well, but there is some cost to the enjoyment level in the course of the film. Yeah, one or two aspects as well as of, of that kind of cultural interface between. Americans and Muslims are slightly clumsily handled. When he asked that question about 9-11 to Kamel, yeah. uh, that for, to me felt like really wrong. Like you've, you, you've been waiting to talk to a Muslim about 9-11. Like yeah, how yeah. many years have it been? Two decades? <laughs> yeah. And you're a university professor? Really? Well, this is, it. This is, it. This is where like, the waiting is a bit off. Like, because he, yeah. he is the central character and he is the writer and it's his life, yeah. there are certain moments when Emily's family, will, they, they'll say something that, really should result in a more emotional reaction but because he's so he's written it it's his life story he's the character he ends up giving the kind of like the deadpan comic punchline and you don't really feel the weight of the stereotype that's been inflicted on him and how that would land as a character you see him responding to it as a comedian as opposed to a character in a fraught emotional situation hmm I'm not sure whether he's just whether I got the sense that he was just used to it all right it's 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 a very fair point what numbers would you throw at this Sophie uh, 
I was actually really jonesing to see it. So I, I'm going to give it a four for anticipation. For enjoyment, we can give half numbers. I remember from last time. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. Mm. And then in retrospect, I'm going to give it a three. Okay. David? Three. in antis- no, no, four in anticipation because it had quite a lot of hype. And then I thought enjoyment was a four because I thought very much in the moment I, I was kind of with it. In retrospect, a three. I wouldn't say it was something I wanted to go necessarily go back to. And Okay. I wasn't that much looking forward to it because I didn't like the trailer particularly. But I loved it at the time. It sent me out into the world with a big glow, ready to hug passers-by and Did do good do things to people. No, Did you touch sadly, any strangers? No. I was in the middle of central London and you know how it is. You can't do that there. You can't do that. Mm. Anyway, don't worry, everyone. It soon wore off. But yeah, I, I loved it. Less fun to watch is our next motion picture, Hounds of Love. Hounds of Love, Ben Young's debut film, pretty extraordinary debut film as well, set in 1980s Western Australia, and it follows uh, a couple, John and Evelyn, played by Stephen Curry, who's a well-known Australian comedian, and Emma Booth, as a murderous couple, basically, who lure a teenage girl, Vicky, played by Ashley Cummings, to their, their home. And it echoes the story of real-life murders committed in Perth in the mid-'80s by uh, David and Catherine Burney. It is, as you may imagine, listeners, a pretty difficult film to watch. Uh, I think I called it before a horror film. David, you're not sure that it actually falls into that category. Well, I say that as, as in I, I don't love any categorization of, mm. of movies in general, really. But um, I think I'd probably get into trouble by the kind of the horror elite by saying this, because I think there's this belief that any kind of dark film that has kind of horrific content in it mm. and that's good is not a horror film because horror films are inherently kind of throwaway bad. Okay. You know, but... Um, so what would you call this then? So, so I don't know. I mean, it felt more like a kind of psychodrama. Right. I think at its core and the thing I, I kind of responded to the most was this idea of these three mm. people trying to second guess the feelings of, of each other. Right. You've got the couple. They initially seem like this kind of very stock sadistic serial killer real life murder couple who kind of they sort of drive slowly around the streets they stalk young women they have a little kind of torture room in their house there's very kind of like checking boxes of all the kind of standard sort of serial killer moves i guess but i kind of like the fact that it sort of moves on from that quite quickly it starts as very much almost like a clinical examination of the the details of, of murdering people almost and then it evolves into a study and some people have touched on the fact that it, it begins to explore a bit why women get involved, participate in this kind of thing. As I said, I find it a really difficult film to watch. And one question I had is, why is this a film? What, what is the, what positives can we take from somebody making this, showing this? And given that it is based on a real life story, is this to an extent exploitative? It is, though, in technical terms. Uh, a pretty extraordinary debut, Sophie. Yeah, and also uh, I want to pick up on a few things that have been said. Um, first of all, the director, Ben Young, said he wants it to be not about the acts committed, but mm. about the people who commit the acts. And I think it's a success on those terms. It's it, Despite its trappings, it's very much about 
the manipulative machinations taking place between these three people. So it is a psychodrama on that level, but it's very, very much a horror film. I must <laughs> fervently disagree with you, David Jenkins, because the stakes are so horrific. Even though the tension is coming from and the, the fuel for the narrative is coming from the dynamic between these people, for uh, Vicky, played by Ashley Cummings, the stakes is just pure horror. So the way this room is covered, this torture room, is you never see exactly what goes on in there. You see there's a box, a horrible box, that is transported in there. And you see what's in that box and you see the bloody tissues, but then the door closes. So you never... Like, my worry watching a, f- a film in which, I mean, these young women are also sexually assaulted, is always, is, th- is that this going to be exploitatively shot? Um, are we going to, like... Uh, under the guy's sympathy, just watch a beautiful new young actress being sexually ravaged. And they, 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 there's, there's a lot of stuff that isn't shown, and I think I, I appreciate that. And, and in as much as it can be, like, a tasteful serial killer, sexual assault horror film, this is a taste, tastefully done. That's going on the poster. <laughs> but one of the, thing, one of the things I, I liked about it, it's a kind of kitchen sink film as well. Hmm. Although it's very sort of stylishly shot, one of the aspects of it is that it's so kind of grotty. It's got that kind of very 80s grottiness. It's very mundane. It's like mm. the, the chains that are attaching her, her to the bedpost, they look like they've kind of, I don't know, just been picked up off the street somewhere. They're like, they're like the dinkiest little chains. And the bed itself is just some crappy kind of, mm. you know, nothing bed. I think this, the, the really scary thing about it is that they've clearly made like minimal effort to create this kind of murder house. And yet it seems like so easy for them to, to have done it. There's this kind of message that, you know... It happens so close to what we were... Go- and that's exactly. sort of the, the way that it focuses on the details, whether it's planes flying by overhead as she's hanging out kind of laundered clothes from from previous victims. It's, it's really chilling. It's a really economical film, this, though. I mean, it was shot very, very quickly and I think on quite a limited budget, but very stylishly done. But there's a couple of flourishes that, that Ben Young concedes himself. One is... Uh, some interesting use of music, particularly nights in white satin. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other one is, is there's a repeat. But no Kate Bush. But no Kate Bush, which I believe was a, a licensing issue. Ah, right. Um, the other one is, is repeated use of, of slow-mos and a really interesting slow-mo technique, which basically the camera's passing really quickly, filming on a lot of frames per second. They slow it down, and you, you don't even know if you're watching a still to begin with. It's done really successfully at the start, and it pops up again later on. I would imagine maybe to uh, emphasise almost the kind of the stillness of life in these Western Australian suburbs. But I wonder what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I thought those shots were interesting. Certainly, certainly like the opening shot is like young girls playing netball in mm. slow-mo. Even though you haven't really seen the perspective that the shot is coming from, there is a kind of very kind of voyeuristic assumption there. Those shots emphasise this idea of like, just people watching other people for a long time and, mm. and sort of time slowing down a little bit. But they are sort of these sort of stylish interludes at the same time, which kind of give the film more of a sort of, you know, the feel of a fiction film, you know, taking it out of re- reality. I, I guess the reason why I, I sort of originally said that it might, I didn't think it was horror is that it reminded me of a, fil- of a film called Snowtown. Did either of you see Yeah, Snowtown? it reminded me of Snowtown also. I haven't seen it, but it's another it's film an, about Australian it's murders. It's Australian serial killers. It's about the, the, the banality of evil in the suburbs and people just getting away with these murders under the noses of all of this kind of quaint facade. Hmm. It's so interested in the, the human factor and the sort of psychologies and the way that 
living these lives is kind of constantly chipping away at you. Another really interesting element of this film is that the main serial killer, Stephen Curry's character, in the house, in his domain, he's the king. He's yeah. he is like the king of the castle, and he you know he he rules. And then as soon as he's outside the door, he's nothing. He's bullied. Maybe it's a kind of pop psychological insight into how interior exterior worlds change a person. And yeah, he he knows that he has to stay inside if he wants to um, hold on to his power. Exactly. Well, yeah. that's the most interesting aspect of the film. It was interested in how domestic abuse works. Because within the dynamic of the couple, she is very much in his through and she loves him and is dependent on him and he manipulates her like a pro in every single situation. The girl witnesses this and so she enters the dynamic as someone whose very life depends upon if she can somehow exploit this even though she's tied in chains on the bed. And it's fascinating. It, it, I don't know how perfect a film this is and for me this repeated use of slow-mo shots seemed like a, a, you know like a flourish that he's d- a former music director I mean that, that's what he'd done before doing music videos I wasn't sure if that was in any way connected with the, this particularly stylish shot that he'd, he'd developed but sorry do go on yeah like I respond to these tricks like if something's in slow-mo I respond to it but when I was thinking about it afterwards I was like I don't know why that happened, when right. that happened. I don't know what that was emphasising. I should say that all the three performances are very good. Vicky, the kidnapped girl, you know, she's almost like in, a, like in that sort of stock role of the, like, screaming captive teenager. But you can see her inner resources. You can see just by her expressions how she's trying to figure out this situation. Um, and how scared she is as well. Yeah, you feel her terror, her mm. horror. I think say. one of the things also that I, I liked about it was that it gives a quite an interesting reason or at least a suggestion as to why this couple are how they are. Mm. It felt a little bit more thought through incredible rather right. than just like they just decided to. Do you like scary films, David? Did you enjoy this? I thought this was impressive, yeah. It's a kind of spin on an old classic, I think. It feels like there's a lot of kidnapped captive kind of misery kind of films and... Uh, and and I think this gives a, a kind of new lick of paint to an old friend, really. Right. Okay. Any um, numbers? Probably give it a three, four, four. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sophie. Similar. Uh, I'll give it a three. All I'd seen before was like a publicity still of Ashley Cummings, who's the actress who plays Vicky screaming. Um, and I was only so excited I can get about an image of a woman screaming. And then four for enjoyment. I just found it very, very gripping the way that the graphic violence was sidelined in favour of the human drama, which is the sort of drama that takes place in the world every day. Definitely a four. And then in retrospect, a three, just because even though it's got this meat at the core of it, I'm not sure there's much that will stay with me. Okay. It's an unpleasant story. I mean, beyond unpleasant. I was not particularly looking forward to this because I scare easy. I struggled. I did think about 10, 15 minutes in, I was not going to make it through the film because that first part especially, when it is just focusing on the the details, the everyday details of of, of killing people, I I really had a lot of problems with it. I would struggle to recommend this unless you're the kind of person who can detach yourself from that and you know just enjoy the, the technical aspects or the psychology of the film. At the time, I plainly didn't enjoy myself. I did make it to the end, listeners. Uh, but in retrospect, I'd salute it as a very well-made film and, and psychologically interesting. But at the time, I would put it like one or something. Not because it's not a good film, just because I was miserable watching this. In a way, that's a 
it's a film was a success. That's an endorsement. Yeah, but that returns to my question: like, why would I be watching this? Why would you make a film that really rubs people's nose, noses in misery? This is a glowing endorsement. Bad horror films right. that don't have characters who are just there to be like chopped up. Yeah, they're not scary and they're not disturbing because right. you don't care. The reason this is disturbing is because Vicky's character. Yeah, she's a kind of tragic figure, a- and, and you, you know, seeing her punished is very very unpleasant right it is a very disturbing film and that we can agree so if you don't want to go to the cinema to get disturbed you might want to avoid it however if you think you like the sound of it uh, then it's out on this Friday. Yeah. All right. And just sorry, just because I think that's quite a downbeat note and a well-made <laughs> film, I would say a- another reason to go and see it is if you are interested in the way that men manipulate women because this is this is like a very unsparing depiction of it. Mm. Well, next up, it's a very different take on horror in Film Club as we tackle Day of the Dead. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yep, it's the Little White Lies Film Club. Every week we watch a classic movie, one you may have missed or that's just worth appraising. Uh, last week, of course, George A. Romero sadly passed away. Did he, though? A little joke. Uh, so as this week's film club, uh, we've gone to what David assures us, and indeed many listeners agree, is the finest of, of his original zombie trilogy, Day of the Dead, made for a measly $3.5 million. It was the lowest grossing film in the dead trilogy but it has gained a cult following over the last two decades and Romero himself says that it's his favorite film out of the original dead trilogy it sounds a little something like this where does it say we should do any one thing but shoot the mothers in the head we don't have enough ammunition captain to shoot them all in the head time to have done that would have been at the beginning no we let them overrun us they have overrun us you know We're in the minority now, something like 400,000 to one by my calculations. 
I'm in charge of this monkey house, Frankenstein. <laughs> this is your favourite, David, of the three. Well, do you know what? That's fun. It, it maybe was last week. Ah. I do like it a lot. Yeah. But I, I rewatched all three in this week just gone. Right. I probably think it's on a par with, with Dawn. Dawn and Day are just like great, I think. Really? Sophie? I watched this film and this film only. Yeah. So I provide the blinkered perspective. Brilliant. Should we go to some listeners? All the people who wrote in, they're all men. I don't know what that means. By the way, there'll almost certainly be some spoilers here. So if you haven't seen it yet and want to, pause this podcast here and go away and watch it. And then if you're back up to speed, good, off we go. Aaron Abernathy Mm -hmm. is probably my favourite of what I consider the real Caps original trilogy pushed the gore envelope like few other films have. Um, I'll take it away with Mark Kidney. (laughs) The aptly named. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, It will always remain my favourite. And I remember getting my mum to buy it on VHS from our MVC store. Tom Savini outdid himself on this one. Who was Tom Savini? Tom Savini is the guy who does all the uh, gore effects in it. Oh, I thought that was Greg Nicotero. No, no, no. This was a Savini joint. Oh, because Greg Nicotero is definitely credited and is, is part of the cast on this. Oh, and of right. course, Greg Nicotero, you know what? He kind of then went on to take The Walking Dead over a cliff edge. Ah. Uh, you know, with that massive drop off in quality, I might be being a little bit partial <laughs> here is when he took over the, the kind of directing helms on, on The Walking Dead. Ah, right. Because Tom Savini's in the previous one is he? as one of the kind of like Hell's Angels who kind of come into the shopping mall at the end and All right. smash things up. Okay. Uh, Robert Pigram says, Ooh. remember it seeing very well at the Scala Cinema London all-nighters in the 70s. Ah, oh, that sounds cool. Very scary. Great movie. Mm. Chris Machel. I remember misguidedly thinking it was terrible when I first saw it as a teen. Then, with each subsequent viewing, I learned to love it a bit more. The soundtrack alone is worth the price of admission, but its nihilistic sense of humour is something else. Choke on them. Choke on him. Choke on him. Yeah. Ian Harris says he, he thinks he's the best zombies ever committed to celluloid. He really likes the underground bunker, which is a brilliant setting. And he, good point. He says uh, all the unknown actors add to that feeling of isolation. We know no one, so anything can happen here. Here's a slightly negative take on it from uh, James Willis, who says, I've seen this a lot of times, wanting to like it more than I can. The overall package is good, but I just can't get past the acting and the silliness of it. I have to say... I kind of agree. Last week, David, you were saying it's amazing how Romero manages to take something like a zombie film, which seems about as superficial as you could, you, you could, you could get, and insert things like philosophy and politics. Um, what was the philosophy and what was the politics in this film? One thing to say about the film is that it's very different from the first two films in the trilogy. Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead are very much like allegories about you know American politics and consumerism in America where both zombies and people are kind of miraculously drawn to shopping malls. And in this film, that is all kind of shorn away. There's no allegory here. It's kind of set right in the middle of Reagan's America and it takes on a bigger question of like science versus the military or and the people who are kind of caught in between Hmm. and it's incredibly bleak with a message that's saying that we're going to be surrounded by zombies but it's we're going to end up killing ourselves rather than you know is that the message because i have to say one of my issues with the film is that extraordinary jump cut at the end which i think i know what he's trying to say was the whole thing a dream 
What is that moment when she gets into the helicopter, someone lurches at her, and then next thing you know, they're on a beach having a whale well, of a time? Well, I think that last shot is totally like it is what you want it to be kind of shot. Oh, you know? thanks. Uh, I hate them when they do that. Oh, no, I think I think it's great. I mean, it's like, could be she died. It could be the whole thing is a dream and they're on the island. Right. And, you know, it's like spoiler. a taxi driver ending. It, it kind of is, yeah. Sort of like this sort of weird mm. fantasy. I watched Night of the Living Dead, uh, which is very, very different. I was thrilled by it. Amazing how stark it is, how original, how bold it is, really singular vision that he has. And it's this comedy, particularly this graveyard scene at the start, they're coming for you, uh, Barbara. Uh, but then after that, it's it's played almost entirely straight. It doesn't all work and there's some clunky editing, but I just thought it was just such a remarkable film. Coming to this, the point he'd arrived at 17 years on, I was really disappointed He's, he does make use of the Technicolor. He's, he's seized on that development. But in all other regards, I, I thought it was kind of very sub-80s horror movie. It was kind of really top-shelf DVD library when you stuck for options on a Saturday night. I, I, ouch. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Sub-Carpenter soundtrack. Oh, double ouch. Yeah, sub-Cameron heroine. And, and as for the, the script... I mean, there's this kind of like banter going on through it, and most of which is, is followed by this incredible whiny, uh, high-pitched giggling. Um, I was wondering if there were massive amounts of pharmaceuticals involved in the production of this film. I mean, certainly there was massive amounts of, of corn syrup, and it does seem that one thing they decided to do with the budget was see how far they could stretch the budget, people's entrails, necks, all that kind of thing, which is by the sound of listeners' comments, something that people have really responded to. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it really did for me <laughs> quite what it does for you. Maybe Sophie wants to uh, Well, I should, in. you know, I should state my, this is my entry point, and it's perhaps a peculiar entry point to George Romero. This is my very first George Romero film. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. And in one way, it feels quite like a pure film. If you want a zombie, you get your zombie. You get a little zombie for your buck in this film. I'm not sure how I feel about the big ideas in there. They're, I feel like they're introduced and then not really explored to their fullest potential. But it's very, I find it a very enjoyable film. Like the characters involved, they might be like stuck characters, but they're delivered with a real committed sense of melodrama. You know, Dr. Frankenstein with his blood splattered white coat. Uh, like hacking at zombie parts willy-nilly, um, you know, the, the the head of the military who just snarl around. All he does is snarl unpleasantness. Well, he's a character I know you particularly want to focus on, David. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, um, this character, Joseph Pilato, um, who plays Rhodes, who's the kind of the de facto head of the military, which, is, which basically means the kind of four cackling goons that they've got left. <laughs> Um, and he, he, everything is about my men. It's like, no, what, you can't do anything to like, you know, put the lives of my men at risk. And there's like, you know, it's like four of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're all obviously going to die in a horrific way. But his, his performance is crazy. It's like pitched at 11, you know, mm. <laughs> every, every line screamed, full of invective. You know, it's red eyed. I mean, it's really, really funny. I mean, you know, there is this sense of... You're never going to kind of preserve the human race when you've got someone like him knocking around. Right. Um, yeah, and e- even though, uh, like, you know, we've had Ripley, we've had these these female heroines before, and she I, she's just, she's hard as, 
this guy is leering at her and making dark insinuations and she's just staring him down. So the characters in the mix, they're all quite enjoyably sketched. And then you've got Dr. Frankenstein's pet zombie who's trying Bub. to... Bob, who he's trying to teach to enjoy classical music. Um, I, I just think that there's just some really satisfying, meaty elements. And the, then add in all those pig entrails. I'm no expert. I don't know. I know he's a director who people know loads about and inspires a cult following. And I'm very much a Johnny come lately. But I thought it had a real sense of fun about it, whilst also being very committed to... Would you watch more of the Romero zombie Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You should definitely watch Dawn. Right. Mm. Um, David, do you take my point, though, about night? Uh, When you look at that and you see the kind of vision and and, and the, the originality of that film, that... This, by contrast, seems to be very much fitting straight into uh, an existing kind of genre, one that he himself uh, created. I just felt that, you know, almost ironically that he'd done this incredible film about zombies, but then 17 years on, it was almost a dead genre, but he's still kind of getting it to shuffle slowly forward. No, I I disagree. I I think that he's really done a lot to try and make a film that's actually you know, adding to the sort of zombie mythology. It's so easy to just repeat the idea of like, oh, look, there are some zombies. Mm. We have to protect ourselves. The zombies are overwhelming us. And, you know, that formula is too easy. And like, I think one of the things that I, I do love about all three of these films, and I think seeing watching them again, really emphasize this and why Romero has the, is thought of as this kind of master filmmaker. He just does the amazing things of like, with like space I hope that isn't a too kind of film critic thing to talk about but like just in all three films he gives you this amazing sense of where things are the way he shoots the bunker in this film mm. you get a sense of them coming to the bunker how they lower descend down into the bunker and then they're in the kind of the main chamber and then there's this kind of area outside and you really get a sense of the distance between places where people are at, at a certain time it's very kind of got the kind of classical dramatic thing about, you know, how it all works. Right. And there's this kind of maze element as well where the zombies are coming in. And he does it with Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead too. You really get a sense of like the space and the claustrophobia and mm. how it's kind of, you can only really have this feeling of claustrophobia if you know where things are and where the characters are, where the evil is, where the good people are and how close they are to one another. He'll repeat shots over and over again. So you're kind of, right, I'm back here, I'm back there. I know, you know, it's it, like editing. He's such a good editor. And that's a, a very dull thing to say about a film that's like got amazing gore, including my favourite bit where the guy has his head pulled off hmm. and to emulate his kind of vocal cords being stretched, his scream kind of goes into this kind of very high pit. Do you remember that bit? I do remember yeah, that yeah, bit. Yeah. You'd warn me about it. I was watching for it. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. I, I love that bit, yeah, where he, he, his scream goes into kind of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Sophie, anything else you want to say about this? Um, just that I... Um, does everyone know the story about uh, how George Romero and Martin Scorsese were both obsessed with the tales of Hopman and... Um, we mentioned that that was his favourite film, Romero's, yeah. last week. I didn't know that it, it ranks as Scorsese's number one as well. Well, like, I don't know if it was number one, but, but basically there's this like famous anecdote about how George J. Romero would go and try and take it out, and it was always there because it was like quite an obscure film, and one time it wasn't there, and it's because Martin Scorsese had taken it out. Brilliant. Um, but anyway, so I watched The Tales of Hoffman, so which is George A. Romero's favourite film, and uh, I saw a scene in it that I thought might be linked 
to uh, Day of the Dead. Tales of Hoffman is like this fantastical opera and Hoffman is uh, played by Robert Rowansville and he wears purple and he has lots of loves and they all end tragically and there's lots of singing. And there's just one scene where he falls in love with a sort of marionette doll played by Moira Shearer and her demise ends up with all her body parts falling to pieces. Oh. And I was like, huh, I wonder where the, he's, that's where he got the <laughs> idea from. We, I mean, you know, apart from the fact you've just given that bit away, we should maybe look <laughs> at Tales of Hoffman because it's clearly a wonderful film. I imagine you've seen it, David. Do you know what? I'm ashamed to say I haven't. I haven't seen it either. It's a Powell Pressburger classic. Uh, and it's one we should certainly add to our, our list for future film clubs. If you have something that you'd like us to look at or any comments on uh, Truth and Movies, then as I mentioned at the start, the email address is truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at LWLies or at the Little White Lies Facebook page. Nathan Fiddler uh, saying he thought Dunkirk was great, especially the sound, or they didn't enjoy it as much as Interstellar or The Dark Knight which he actually teared up watching, well, Interstellar anyway, is there something wrong with me? No, Nathan, there isn't. There isn't. Interstellar, I think there's a lot of heart behind that film, which is why I I personally am prepared to forgive it all sorts of kind of wild gaping holes in the the narrative. But anyway, Nathan says, for film clubs in future, could you do Akira? It's an all-time favourite. That's a great shout, isn't it? That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, Sophie, have you seen Akira? I have not, no. I, I, I remember driving in my extreme youth all the way down to Bristol to watch it at some science fiction festival down there. Wow. That was the anime that kind of yeah. broke it broke it all, yeah. you know. It all, that's when it came, came west. Right. So what are we doing next week, David? I think this is one that's going to produce a lot of love and a lot of hate in equal measure. Oh it's kind of inspired by... Luc Besson's Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which will be covered next week. Mm. And the film we're going to be talking about is uh, David Lynch's Dune. Oh. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. I will spoil it all by saying I'm, I'm a fan of said film. Okay. Yeah, I think... It divides opinion. It divides opinion. And people, like the letter N, as in, I like to say. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just going to watch the normal cut. The normal no, cut. No, none of the, no funny but, business. Right, OK. So normal cut Dune is your homework for next week in a show which we will also, as you just mentioned, be discussing Valerian, where worryingly they have kind of scrapped all the kind of advanced screenings. They did one the other day and all the other ones have been scrapped as far as I know. So it's going to be interesting to see why. Also on the agenda next week, England is Mine, which is the... Very low-key biopic of Stephen Patrick Morrissey, which takes the interesting editorial choice of following his life up until the bit where it gets interesting. Anyway, we'll talk more about that next week. I do hope you'll be joining us. Anything else you want to throw in before we let listeners get on with their lives, Sophie? I think we just need to do another shout-out to the futurist, don't we? Oh, why? Okay, what what shout-out is it this week? He's our biggest fan. He's a debonair melancholic from utter despair, New Jersey. Right. And I think that alone merits a shout-out. Okay. The shout-out is to the futurist is just keep keep the feedback coming. He said he had some suggestions. I asked him what. He said he'd like chamber music instead of the drum breaks. Yeah, there you go. Oh, no, harpsichord music. Okay. Something to consider, I think. It is certainly something to... Or flute. Uh, Anyway, that 
if that is that, then we can wrap this puppy up. We will be back next week. So many thanks for listening. Many thanks as well for being here, Sophie and David. This has been a Seven Digital production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.